But please take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to the Gospel according to Luke. And chapter 4, once again, chapter 4 of the Gospel according to Luke. And this morning we will come to the final section of the temptation of Jesus that's found in the first 13 verses. So Luke chapter 4, we'll read starting in verse 1 through verse 13. Luke writes these words. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I'll give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. If you've ever paid much attention to what goes on behind the counter of any retail establishment, you may have noticed a sign that says something like this, in God we trust, all others do what? Pay cash. All others pay cash. This rules out just putting down some type of credit or IOU It would even rule out writing a check, which, of course, could come back with insufficient funds and could bounce, leaving the owner of the establishment without the money in exchange for the goods that you've purchased. In God we trust, all others pay cash. They want to make sure that they get paid because God may always be trusted, but man cannot always be trusted. Man is finite in his capacity. He may not know that he doesn't have the money in the bank account, and therefore he thinks he's going to be able to pay you, but he can't. Or man is also sinful, and sometimes they will deceive you and make you think that they're paying for something, but in reality they have no intention of that check actually going through at all. God is to be trusted, but man is not. However, in this text... The devil tries to bring God down to the level of just another one of his creatures. One of his finite, incapable creatures. Or one who may even be deceptive. He tries to get Jesus to treat God like God is one of us. Like God doesn't necessarily have either the ability or the faithfulness to do what he has said. In other words, he challenges Jesus to put God to the test. We want to learn from this passage, and we have been learning how Jesus responds when temptation comes. And we want to learn how to think 
about the specific temptations that Jesus faces, including in this third and final phase of the temptation event. We also want to see how Jesus handles this so that we can know some examples of how we might respond when we're tempted. But not only that, we want to know how he responds so that we can see just how glorious he is, how faithful he is, how trustworthy he is, and how worthy he is of our worship and our obedience. Jesus shows us not only an example of what we ought to do, but he shows us that he is the one in whom we ought to place our faith for salvation on an eternal scope. Jesus has already successfully overcome two temptations. The temptation, first of all, to value food over trusting God. In verses 3 and 4, the devil tempts him to make a stone into bread. And Jesus says there are more important things in life than even your necessary food. And I'm not going to distrust God to provide for me if that means that I'm neglecting obeying him. The second temptation in verses 5 through 8, Jesus was tempted with the wrong path to glory. Jesus does have a future promise of glory, even from the Father, of ruling all the nations. But the devil tempted him to go about it the wrong way, a shortcut, to bow down and worship him instead. Now, while I'm here, I might mention briefly uh, something of a, a note of correction. It was brought to my attention uh, between when talking about this and talking uh, about it today that it would seem impossible that this could have covered any future kingdoms as I offered as a possibility uh, if it was indeed the devil showing it to him as the devil doesn't, to our knowledge, know the future the way that God does. And so when he says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, this would seem at most to refer to the past and present and since it's not including the future, most likely simply the, the kingdoms of the world going on at that time. Regardless, Jesus was offered all of it. He was offered the rule over the nations. And rather than doing what the devil told him, he refused and he obeyed God and he trusted God with the timing of this. And he trusted God to go through the hardships that would be required for him to get there, namely suffering so that he might purchase and redeem from every nation and tribe and tongue a people for his own possession. Jesus showed us that there is to be no worship but true worship. And he modeled that for us, but also showed his greatness and his resistance to temptation. But this morning, we're going to look at the third and the final temptation. We're going to look at how Jesus responds to the temptation to put God to the test. And once again, what we'll see is this, that Jesus perfectly responds to the devil's temptations and shows himself to be God's faithful son who is ready to minister to the people. Jesus perfectly responds to the devil's temptations and shows himself to be God's faithful son who is ready to minister to the people. So Jesus has successfully overcome two temptations, but the devil isn't done with him. He's got something else, another trick up his sleeve. And let's see now what he tries. We'll begin by looking at the substance of the devil's challenge. The substance of his challenge. And it begins with what he tells Jesus to do in verse 9. What he tells him to do is this. It says he led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. The temple uh, being at the center of Jerusalem, um, at least religiously and politically speaking, 
he takes him here. It's uh, very high to the top of it at this time. Hard to know exactly. And it would depend upon the side of the temple that he's on, just how high above the ground it would be, because the ground beneath was at different elevations depending on which part of the temple you were on. Um, either way, or one way or another, whichever part it was, it would have been um, perhaps well over 100 feet above the ground and perhaps several hundred feet, um, enough to kill him when he lands. And the devil says, if you're the son of God, you're going to do this anyway. Go ahead and throw yourself down from here. Now, this doesn't make any sense by itself, does it? Why would you just throw yourself off the top of the temple? Unless all your friends are doing it, of course. Why would you throw yourself off the top of the temple? Well, the answer is not to kill yourself. But here the devil is saying, do this to prove something. Prove something. And he goes on in verses 10 and 11 to give Jesus sort of the justification for why Jesus should go ahead and try such a thing. He said, it is written, he'll command his angels concerning you to guard you. On their hands they'll bear you up so you won't strike your foot against a stone. What is he saying here? That the angels are going to protect you. And the reason they're going to protect you is because God wants to protect you. God will make sure that when you do this, you won't even get hurt at all, much less killed. Now, the preliminary challenge is the same as in verse 3. He says, if you're the son of God. And so he is kind of saying, on this basis, do this. But this is a slight difference from there. In verse 3, the implied challenge was, if you're the son of God, you ought to be able to do this. Go ahead and take care of yourself. In verse 9, the implied challenge is, if you're the son of God, God cares so much about you that he's not going to let anything happen to you. God would never let anything happen to his beloved son. So go ahead and do this. And there are really two major elements of Satan's challenge here. First of all, Jesus, you need to prove that you actually are the son of God. Because if you are the son of God, then that will become evident when you are rescued. God won't let anything happen to his son. Jesus has already shown himself to be above this kind of need to prove himself to the devil. But there's a second challenge which is latent in this, which is prove that God is looking out for you. Not just prove who you are, but prove that God is looking out for you. The scripture that he cites, which we'll see in a moment, is about God's protection. And the devil is saying to Jesus, does God really care about you? Is God really going to protect you? Is he really going to take care of you? This passage says he will. Why don't you go and prove it. And not just prove that God is willing, but prove this, that you believe that God will protect you. The proof is not just of God's character and God's promise and his faithfulness to his promise. The proof that the devil is saying Jesus needs to do here is how much do you really trust God? Do you really believe that God cares for you? This is what he tempts Jesus to prove. He is tempting Jesus to prove God's character and his own faith. He is saying, God is not like you say he is, or you're not as faithful as you say you are until you're willing to do this. 
Now, of course, then, what the devil tries to convince Jesus to do is wrong. We know this. It's a temptation. He's tempting him to do something. But what exactly is the problem? And we get help from Jesus' answer in verse 12, which is, of course, this. He says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The problem is putting God to the test. And this is what Satan is trying to get Jesus to violate. He's not ignorant of what Satan wants to do. He wants Jesus to test God. Now you'll notice here that the devil is being sneaky. First of all, there's no commandment not to throw yourself off the temple. Now, of course, that stands to reason. Why would there need to be a commandment not to throw yourself off of the temple? There are certainly principles of not being foolish with danger that are in the Bible, but that's not really what's going on here. Um, The devil wants Jesus to do this because he knows that it would be testing God. And we'll talk more about what testing God means in just a few moments. But before we get there, we, we want to consider this question. How does the devil try to persuade Jesus to do this how does he come about this he's super sneaky when he does this but what is his method how does he try to tempt him what's the pathway to get Jesus to try to do what he says and I want you to note the new and the clever tactic all Jesus wants to do so far is what in response to temptation what does he do verse 4 Jesus said it is written verse 8 Jesus said it is written All Jesus does is cite scripture and apply scripture. And so the devil says, well, I got some scripture for you. How about this one? How about Psalm 91? He says, how about this promise from God? He says, this is what God has said. Isn't this your standard, Jesus? So let's prove it. Let's see how much you believe this Bible that you've been quoting. This brings us to the next series of things to consider, which are the problems with the devil's challenge. The problems with the devil's challenge. And the first one of these is wrongly applying the Bible. Wrongly applying the Bible. This is how the devil misuses scripture. Not the only way he misuses it, but it is one of the ways. The devil himself cites scripture. He quotes it, but he doesn't use it the right way. Scripture, of course, has always been misused by Satan right from the beginning. He came to Adam and to Eve specifically, and he said, has God really said this? And then he undermined God's motivation in giving the command. He attacks God's word over and over again. This is what he does. He's a deceiver, but look at how clever he is. He quotes scripture. You see this. It is written, same words that Jesus has used before. It is interesting that when Jesus responds, he uses a different word. It is said Maybe even to set a contrast from how the devil is using this. Nonetheless, he quotes scripture. He accurately quotes scripture. He gives a rendering that is accurate and faithful to Psalm 91 where it came from. Uh, He even correctly connects the Old Testament reference to the Son of God and as valid for Jesus. But these things still don't mean he's doing it right. Again, he's being super sneaky here. And it speaks to us about something which is the vital importance of applying Scripture properly. And there is a bigger picture lesson here. That just because someone knows what the Scripture says does not mean that they're being faithful in their use of that Scripture. Sometimes people don't know that they're using it inaccurately. And it's harmful. And it causes people to 
disobey God or have a wrong view of him, but often they do. And here, that's the case with Satan. Satan knows scripture, but it doesn't mean that he's using it accurately. And here he is using it in bad faith. He knows that this passage is not supposed to be an encouragement to go throw yourself off of the temple. He's trying then to get Jesus to apply this in a way that it was never meant to be applied. Satan is misapplying scripture and it's not an accident. Now, many people today do the same thing. And maybe you know about people doing this. Maybe you have heard people doing this. Maybe you've even followed people who have done this. And they'll take partial truths or biblical passages and do this in all kinds of ways to cover their real intentions. You know, if you just give this money here, this will be the outcome because the Bible talks about that. If you just show respect to this person, the Bible talks about the Lord's anointed or things like that. And you need to not criticize because you're not supposed to harm the Lord's anointed. Or you're supposed to do what the Judaizers did in Galatians 6 and try to get other, you're supposed to follow their instructions. But the reason they want you to keep those commandments, in that case to be circumcised, is not because it's right, but because it makes them look good. It protects them from persecution. There are all kinds of places in Scripture where people will take biblical commands, apply them in situations they were never intended to be used, and they do so for their own wrong, selfish interests. So this is what people do, and this is what Satan is doing here. Unfortunately, many people oversimplify Jesus' response to these temptations. They say, what did Jesus do when he was tempted? Well, he quoted Scripture. Yes, he did. But he did more than quote scripture. Jesus didn't just quote scripture. In fact, the devil did that. Even the devil can quote scripture. Even the devil can quote scripture accurately. But Jesus takes it one step further and he used it the right way. All of this to say that it's not enough to know what the scripture says. It's a necessary foundation. You must know what it says, but you also have to know what the scripture means. And I would even say this, it's not just enough to know what it means. You also need to make sure that you don't misuse it by wrongly applying it to circumstances it was never meant to be applied to. And I hear this all the time about uh, about scripture and the way that people use it. And I'll hear someone say this, they'll talk about somebody's preaching and they'll say, you know, this guy is a great preacher. He uses lots of scripture to which I say that can be a phenomenal thing. And it's so much better than using no scripture, which you know is wrong. But just because they use lots of scripture doesn't mean that they're using it accurately. And you could point, many of you, to books that you've read or sermons that you've heard where passages are cited all out of context and all kinds of translations that are used just to make the point that they want to make at that particular point. Just because you use a lot of scripture doesn't mean that you're honoring God and that you're getting his message accurate. So make sure that the passages are being used faithfully. Don't just be okay with using scripture, even using a lot of scripture. So those Bible studies that you hear about or that you go to, make sure that just because you're going through passage by passage, it doesn't mean that you're getting the Bible correct. Listening to sermons, reading books, whatever it is, make sure that you're looking at those passages, not only in their context, but also are these the intended applications of those passages? Make sure that you don't use the devil intentionally or not the way that Satan uses the Bible. Don't use it like him. Use it instead like Jesus. Now, I do want to take a step back from what I'm saying and 
acknowledge, not just acknowledge, but commend the value of knowing Scripture. There is no way to know what it means and how to apply it until you actually know what it says in the first place. So it may not be enough to just quote it, but can you see the value of being able to quote it, to pull it up from memory, to see what Jesus is able to do here? Uh, Sometimes we tend to downplay the importance of getting Scripture exactly right. And in a generation where we have instant access to be able to search the Internet for things or to look up the Bible in our pocket on a phone, we just say, as long as we kind of know where it is and maybe we can look up and we'll say, doesn't the Bible say something like this? Or isn't there a passage about that? Well, maybe there is, but maybe there's not. And can you pull it up on the spot? And more importantly, will you be able to pull that up in your mind and use it rightly when you're tempted and you don't really want to look at something at that moment or you don't have time? We want to make sure that we're not content with just the general idea of Scripture. And so we recognize that there is no command in the Bible to memorize God's Word There's no command that you must know it in that exact way. But can you see the value of knowing Scripture and being able to pull it right up out of your brain? Can you understand the benefit of being able to follow Jesus' example here of getting it not just kind of right, but exactly right? Of being able to do what he does and pull what we might think of as an obscure verse from Deuteronomy 6 right out of his head and apply it to that situation? This is why you need to know the Bible. This is why there is no limit to the benefit of knowing all of what Scripture says. And then as you do that, of course, make sure that you think about how to rightly apply it. So Jesus knew the Bible. He knew what it said, and he used it rightly at the same time. He knew that Satan was missing something. And so Jesus recognizes the tactic, and he says, there's something else in view here. And so verse 12 He answered and said to him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Devil, there is something else going on. And what you have presented to me is not entirely inaccurate, but it is fundamentally inaccurate because there is more to the story. There's an additional piece of scripture that you are leaving out. And that scripture says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. This is the second problem with the devil's challenge. Not only does it misapply scripture, but it is also an example of violating scripture, which says that you're not to put God to the test. Putting God to the test is the second problem with the devil's challenge. Now, if you would, uh, if you want to know the original reference, we'll look in Deuteronomy 6, and I want to read from where the original event took place that caused this to be said in the first place. So if you want to turn to Exodus 17 with me, I'll read a, a section from that chapter, Exodus 17. The passage that Jesus is citing comes from Deuteronomy 6, 16, which says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Exodus 17 is the description of that event. They've come out of Egypt. They have been through the Red Sea, through the middle of it on dry ground. And God has provided for them manna. He's provided for them meat in Exodus 16. And they should trust him. Verse seven, uh, chapter 17, verse 1, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin according to the command of the Lord and encamped at Rephidim. And 
There was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people, and what should they have done? Cried out to the Lord and said, God, give us water. Or said, well, the Lord has provided food and meat for us. How will he not provide water? But what did they do instead? They quarreled with Moses and said, give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, why now have you brought us up out of Egypt to kill us? And our children and our livestock with thirst. So Moses cried out to the Lord saying, what shall I do with this people? A little more and they'll stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. They named the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. And because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Deuteronomy 6.16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. This is a description of what happened. The passage that Jesus is citing refers to that historical reference. Israel camped. There was no water there. And so they thought about the God who had just rescued them from Pharaoh and from slavery in Egypt. And they said, in effect, he doesn't care about us is he really here is he really among us is he as he promised to be dwelling among his people israel he said he'll be our god but we don't have any water that doesn't make sense under our logical construction so is he really here and moses said you are testing the lord you're putting him to the test and so he warned the generation at the end of the wilderness journeys in Deuteronomy 4 or Deuteronomy 6, don't do this like the previous generation did when they came out of Egypt. This generation then tested the Lord. They said, what you have shown to us, God, what you have told us already is not enough. You need to do more. And you don't just need to do more on this occasion, but the implied response is you're always going to have to do more. You're always going to have to give us, God, what we think we need in any given moment. You need to be willing to do something for us anytime we're not sure that you're who you say you are or else we are not going to trust you. And this kind of attitude is saying something implicitly about God. If God does not come through for me the way I want, whenever I expect him to, then he's not really who he says he is and he doesn't care about me. That's what it says. If he doesn't come through for me the way I want, when I want, he's not who he says he is, and he doesn't care about me. That's what it means to put God to the test. Does this sound like something that you've thought before, that you've done before, or at least that you've acted like before? Is God really there? I'm going through this hardship. Is God really there? These things are against me. Is God really there? I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. Is God really there? Does God really care about me? I know that he's done these things in the past. And I know that's, you know, it's in the Bible. He did these things. But that's just in a book, you know. Is he really like that still? Putting God to the test. Too many people's view of God is exactly like this. It may be something like this. They come into the Christian life. 
things change in certain ways, their circumstances change, all of a sudden they're not running around with the people who are causing all kinds of trouble, they're not getting into trouble anymore, good things start to happen, they're no longer feeling the effects of a life that rebels against God, and following God kind of helps them to fix their life. And then trials start to happen. And all of a sudden, their life circumstances aren't as changed as they used to be. And the hard reality of living for a long time in this world starts to come to pass. And they say, God, are you sure you're still the same God who I believed in when I started this whole thing? And of course, God is still the same as he always was. But the question is, what did we believe about him? Our view of him may have been wrong. And now we start to doubt him because we used to think that God is the one who would change all our circumstances. But... Now he's not doing that. In fact, they're worse than they were before. So we say, is God really among us? Is God really in my life? Does God really love me? And we allow a false view of God to fester inside of us. Another way that people put God to the test is something like this. They come up with an idea or a standard and they say, uh, God can do this. He has the ability to do this. And then they will do what they call believing God for that thing. I'm going to believe God for this. I'm going to trust God for this. Or I'm going to act in faith for this. It may be money. It may be a certain relationship. It may be a business venture. It may be happiness. It may be a job. It may be some possession. It could be anything. Anything that you pick. I'm going to believe God for this. Or, you know, I'm just stepping out in faith and I'm trusting that God will do this. And then they place upon God the obligation to provide that thing for them. And they say, God, if you really love me, then... Surely you'll let me get this job. Surely you won't let this bad thing happen. And they say, God, show me some proof that you love me. Often, people who think this way, this believe in God for something, will tell you that you should do the same thing. And then if you don't believe God for those things and kind of come up with ideas like that from time to time, then you are weak in faith and that you don't trust God. Do you really not trust God that he's going to answer that prayer for the thing that he didn't promise but that you came up with? Well, then you're weak in faith. What's wrong with your faith? Are you doubting God? Don't you believe in him? This is exactly what the devil is doing. Just because God can protect Jesus from being thrown off of a temple, it doesn't mean God promised that he would. And the devil would say, Jesus, what's wrong with your faith, man? Why don't you believe me? Why don't you believe God? Well, because that's not what biblical faith is. Now, if you were to promise me tomorrow, or that you were take promise me today, that tomorrow you are going to take me to the fanciest restaurant in town, and I believe you, and I show up at the appointed time, that is faith in you. That's faith in your word. That's me saying, you know, I trust that this guy is not going to lie to me. I trust that I'm going to get there, and he'll be able to, you know, he'll be able to pay for it if he's offered to do that. But what if this happened? What if I knew that you had the money to go there, that you've been there before, um, and even that you had taken me and invited me there before, and that you had treated me to the fanciest meal that you could think of? And I knew that you had done that, and I knew that you could do that. And so I simply decided, you know, I'm going to show how good of a guy this is by making this happen again. And I told you, you know, tomorrow... Uh, the, you need to show up at this restaurant at noon and we'll go there and you can buy me lunch again and you'll be there and I know you will because you're just that kind of a person. What if I believed you for that? Well, you'd be highly insulted. And if you didn't come through, is there something wrong with you? No, 
you're still the same generous person that you always were. There's something wrong with me. I put you to the test. I presumed upon you and upon your character and upon your goodness. It's not unbelief to not presume that someone won't do something that they haven't specifically promised. It is not biblical faith to presume upon someone that they will do something that they haven't promised. And so we should never decide what God is obligated to do for us if he hasn't already told us that he'll do that specific thing. Now, sometimes God has promised a specific thing, and we see this all across the Bible. Uh, For example, David went out in faith against Goliath. And this is not like any old person going out in battle against somebody else and saying, God will be with me and I know he'll give me victory. Because David had some specific promises in the covenant that he was operating under with God about what God would do for Israel if they acted in faith and went out against their opponents. Those things are written in the law of Moses. Joshua and Caleb trusted God by saying that the Israelites would definitely defeat these large Canaanites that everybody else was scared of. And the reason why they knew that is because God said, go in the land and I will give the land into your hand and I'll give your enemies into your hands. So he knew that. And even in the book of Malachi, some of you may be thinking about this language. In chapter 3, God said, test me, test me and see if I won't open up the storehouses of heaven. And I won't give you all that you need. But the reason God says that is because he's telling them to test him by actually obeying the command that God had given about what they were supposed to do, bringing in their tithes and their offerings to the priests. So these are all things that were commanded, and therefore it's valid for someone to act in faith according to God's command. But Israel in the wilderness tested God. They tested God. In fact... They did this by refusing to obey his command. Numbers 14, 22, Moses relates the words that God says, these men have put me to the test these 10 times. And refusal to do what God said going into the land was an act of unbelief by which they tested him. So they put God to the test. What does it mean then to put God to the test? What does it mean? Well, fundamentally, it is unbelief. Putting God to the test is unbelief. And it plays out in one of two main ways. Either you don't believe God unless he proves himself to you. Or you set up a standard that God has to meet and you require him to do it. Or else you won't believe in him. You either don't believe God until he proves himself to you. Or you set up a standard that God has to meet and you require him to do it before you'll believe in him. This is what it means to test God. We test God then when we make our standard the standard of what God must be and do or else we will not exercise faith in him. And that's what Satan told Jesus to do here. Now it's phrased in quite spiritual language. Is it not? He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. They're going to protect you. This is what God has promised. This is going to prove that you're God's son. But it is literally a lie from the devil. God didn't tell Jesus to test the promise in this way. And Jesus isn't going to do it. Um, By the way, I would just note here that there are people who exercise this kind of thinking. And I just want to emphasize that whether intentionally or not. And we can be careful to sort out motives here. But when they are doing this, they are following satanic reasoning. They They are testing God. 
And we are not to do this. It looks like faith. This is why it's so deceptive. It looks like faith because it's supposedly believing God for things that nobody else can do. But it's making up something that God has not specifically promised. And we need to be very careful that we never, never do this. In the words of the great Puritan theologian John Owen, quote, Imagination creates its own object. Faith finds it prepared beforehand. Imagination creates its own object. Faith finds it prepared beforehand. What we often call faith is just our imagination being placed upon God to do for us what we come up with rather than believing what God has already said that he will do. Jesus recognizes the devil's tactics then. He says, you're putting God to the test. You want me to do that and I'm not going to do that. And so he brings another scripture to bear. And that then leads us to consider one more problem with the devil's challenge. And it's a subtle one, but it's important for us to also understand, which is what I'll call uncontrolled deducing from Scripture. Uncontrolled deducing from Scripture. You say, that is the wildest outline point I've heard in a while. Uncontrolled deducing from Scripture. What do you mean by that? Well, we make deductions from passages. We go to the scripture and we say, this says this, it means this, and then we come to logical conclusions from those passages. And that's right and good to do. In fact, that's how we develop theology. We, we pull theology from scripture. We don't bring our theology to the text and impose it. We go to the passage and we say, passage by passage, we pull the theology out of the text and we kind of pull it all together and we sort it out. And this is what we believe about God because we're drawing it out of the text. Well, what you see here is that Scripture brings the corrective to a wrong view, but not just a wrong view from outside the Bible, rather a wrong view that is supposedly from inside the Bible. It's a correction to a wrong, supposedly logical deduction from the Bible. And we need to be on guard against this as well because we're often tempted either ourselves or through listening to other people to run wild with logical deductions from Scripture, in particular when there's a certain text that we really like. And we will draw all kinds of conclusions from that and develop an entire theology from a single text unbounded by all that God has said. And the problem is that we end up getting it wrong when we don't hem it in by what else God has said. It is Scripture as a whole that bounds how far we can take other Scripture. It also corrects us about the direction we're taking in the first place. This is the right use of the principle of what we call the analogy of Scripture, or Scripture interprets Scripture, namely that the Bible itself it interprets itself. And sometimes people will use this as a cop-out and say, well, I'm, uh, you know, I'm just going to, uh, this passage is kind of difficult and kind of hard, so let me just go to a passage I know, and this one that I'm looking at that's hard can't mean what it says because another passage that I know says something that seems to be different. And we don't want to address the scripture in that way and just bail out to our favorite passages. But we do want to make sure that we go to scripture and understand that there is more to the Bible than just the one text that we're looking at. And we want to take the whole into account. We use other scriptures to prevent us from running away with conclusions that are invalid from scripture. Let me give you a few of these. Um, sometimes people see the passages about God's work and sanctification, and they say, it's not your job to sanctify yourself. God will sanctify you entirely. 
1 Thessalonians 5, Paul prays that God would sanctify you. And they say, therefore, that means that this is God's job, not yours. But what does Philippians chapter 2 say? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, on the other side of that, people might go to that passage and say, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is all you doing this. But what does the text go on to say in the very next phrase? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But if we just take a phrase and run wild with it, then we might think, well, this is God's work, and therefore we don't do anything with regard to salvation. People have wrong views of sanctification all the time. On the basis of this, they'll pick one favorite verse or one favorite kind of verse and ignore the whole of Scripture about this and get an entirely wrong view that's damaging to their souls. Also, we read passages about God providing for us. Jesus says, don't worry. God's going to provide what you need. Seek first his kingdom. Pray. Trust him to provide for you. But there are also passages that tell us you have to work. 2 Thessalonians 3 says, if you don't work, you're not willing then you shouldn't even eat. It's balancing out these things. Jesus is said to always be with us. Matthew 28, there's a promise. I am with you always. But John 15 tells us that there's a way in which Jesus will abide with us only as we abide in him and as we obey him. So we can't just say, doesn't matter what I do. Jesus is with me and he's always on my side. He is in a certain sense. But we also need to recognize that he wants us to obey him. And then, of course, this idea of God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. God is sovereign, so we don't need to pray. God is in control of everything, so we don't need to evangelize. God is sovereign, so if I take this path and he doesn't want me to go down that road, then he'll stop me. None of those are biblical conclusions from the sovereignty of God. All of them are corrected by other passages about our requirement to evangelize, our requirement to pray, and our requirement to act in wisdom. All of these would be prevented if we use the Bible the way that Jesus does instead of the way Satan does. Satan cherry-picks verses that he likes and omits the ones that get in the way of what he wants them to say. But Jesus, thankfully, knows the Bible backward and forward the way that we ought to, and he uses it to put limits on the scope of application in exact alignment with what God has spoken. Now, back to Jesus and what he's doing here in response to temptation. Let's look at his response to the devil's challenge. Jesus' response to the devil's challenge. First of all, his wise answer, and we've already seen it. He cites scripture accurately and he uses it rightly. He brings in the commandment of God. Don't test him. Don't put God to the test. He knows how one scripture bounds the inferences you can draw from another. And he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16. And he says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. This is his wise answer. He knows exactly what's at the heart of it. He goes right there. He knows the relevant scripture that is exactly the one that he needs to have in his heart. And he's not even really doing this so that the devil won't test God. He is just simply saying, devil, here is why I'm not going to do what you say. Because for me, this would be testing God. And I am not going to violate that command. In addition to his wise answer, though, it's not just what he says. I want you to think bigger picture about what he's doing and I want to consider for a moment his true faith his true faith Jesus of course is tempted to disobey and he doesn't do that we could talk here about Jesus 
obedience. And that's true. That's there. That's vital. Jesus needed to always obey. And because of his nature and who he was, ultimately he would always obey. And he did. But I want you to think about his expression of faith in God rather than doubting here. And this is especially significant in my view because Jesus is being tempted with the implication, if you don't do this, you lack faith. You're not as faith-filled as you would like to show yourself to be. When, in fact, the exact opposite is true. This is Jesus being tempted with something that looks like faith on the surface, but it's actually the opposite. Jesus was the ultimate faith-filled man. Now, Jesus' faith is a little bit different than ours, isn't it? Because for us, Jesus is the object of our faith. Jesus is the one that we put our trust in. In fact, no one who does not believe in Jesus will be saved. But everyone who does put their faith in Jesus will be saved. Romans 3.26 says that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The one who believes in God will be declared righteous by God. Rather, the one who believes in Jesus. He is the object of our faith. He's not just an example. He's not just the lawgiver. He's not just the one who is God. He is the object of our faith. And we must believe in him when we put all our hope upon him for our eternal salvation. And so he is alongside and together with God the Father, the object of our faith. And in this way, he doesn't believe in himself. Unlike us, he has no need to be forgiven. He doesn't need to be declared righteous, made righteous the way we do. He doesn't have to have our kind of faith. But he does exercise faith. In fact, he's the most faith-filled person to ever lived. And he shows this here. He believed God's word. He always believed God's word. He always trusted the Heavenly Father's plan, even when he was begging to get out of it. He says, I'm still going to trust you, God, and go through with this. Jesus always believed God, and this is no exception. And his faith is on full display here. The devil is trying to get him to sin under the guise of showing his faith. And Jesus says, devil, let me show you what real faith looks like. Real faith looks like rigid adherence to the word of God. Real faith looks like believing all that God has said and doing what God says and not doing what God forbids, regardless of the offer, regardless of what that could get me. Jesus is the ultimate faith-filled man. And so he rejects what is wrongly presented as faith, and he acts according to what is rightly faith, according to Scripture. Satan says, if you believe God, do this dangerous thing and show your faith in him. And Jesus said, if you believe God, you won't put him to the test. So then... The devil loses. And uh, this round is over. We'll consider finally the, the failure of the devil's challenge. The failure of the devil's challenge. Verse 13, when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. He's not done with him by any means. Jesus will be tempted badly on at least one more occasion that's highlighted the night in which he's betrayed, but if I might borrow a term from a popular, if controversial, video game from my youth, Jesus has won a flawless victory. He has taken no hits. He has made no errors. He has perfectly countered all of his opponent's 
attacks. And he has knocked him out for the match. And with this passage, Jesus' preparation for ministry is complete. He's shown that he is the anointed son of God. He's been baptized with the people. He's been approved by the father. He's been tested and he has overcome the test. And when we come back next time, we'll begin to look at what he does in his public ministry. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this faithful, wise, obedient, glorious son. What a one who would be able to minister to your people. What a one who would be qualified to represent you in the world in every way. What a one who is worthy for us to follow, not only as the example of faith, but as the object of our faith. And may it be that all of us would trust in him as the one who can forgive us from all of our sins and grant us eternal life. May you be pleased as we go. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.